have your Bibles, let's go to Luke chapter 22 together. And thank you for those of you who prayed for our ladies as they were away at the women's seminar this weekend. Just heard that was a really fruitful time, and thank you for your prayers as well. I was ministering the word with the men at Calvary Chapel of York and just really sensed the Lord's fruitfulness in that time as well. And uh, just uh, a refreshing time uh, for our ladies. And, and, and as I'm thinking of that as we were worshiping, the thought was coming to my mind, and maybe it's uh, something of, of help and benefit uh, to you as a family if you had one of the ladies away at that retreat. Uh, remember in the Bible that when Jesus called Peter, James, and John up to the mountaintop and he was transfigured before them and they saw the Lord's glory and they had this incredible experience with the Lord that as they descended from the mountaintop waiting for them was the demon-possessed boy uh, at the bottom of the mountaintop. Uh, so Remember that, because sometimes uh, when we've been on the mountaintop and experienced the glory of the Lord and come back from times like that, boy, it's amazing how you come down the mountaintop and there's some demon-possessed situation <laughs> just waiting there to, to greet you and to just send you right off track real quick. So be on your guard against that for what it's worth, be that as it may. Uh, be discerning. A lot of times that's, that's how it works after we have great times of fellowship together with the Lord and uh, the enemy loved to pull the rug right out from underneath of us. So this morning we're in Luke 22 and if you do need a Bible there's a couple in the aisle there. Just lift your hand up if you want to follow along in God's Word with us and you need a copy of the Scriptures. And we're going to be in Luke 22 right in verse 52 where we left off last week. And we're going to run our way through the remainder of the chapter this morning. It's kind of a lengthy section, so I don't want to read the entire thing. So what I'll do is just read verse 52 down uh, through verse 62 to kind of just give us a context of what we'll be looking at. And then we'll pray and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts. And would you stand together with me out of respect for the scriptures as we read our passage for this morning's study. Luke 22, beginning in the 52nd verse, tells us, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And having arrested him, they led him away and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. And Father, we 
ask as we open up the scriptures this morning that, Lord, you would help us now through the assistance of your Holy Spirit that even as when your son Jesus walked on this earth and he opened up the minds of those disciples on the Emmaus Road to comprehend the scriptures, Lord, would you help us? Lord, we want to continue in an attitude of worship now as we stand here before you reverently and, and Lord, at attention in a sense, ready to receive our marching orders from you as our leader and our Lord speaking into our lives. We pray that you would inscribe your will on the fleshly tablet of our heart. Take this portion of your word, every thought, every intent, every purpose and reason behind why you inspired it and wrote it. We pray we might receive that powerfully and personally speak to our hearts this morning lord bless your word and your spirit's ministry and we ask these things in jesus wonderful name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated you know as we go through the passage that we're going to look at together this morning it's going to be very obvious that there's a very clear comparison set out before us here of, of really to me particularly two things Jesus's incredible faithfulness that becomes obvious throughout the hours of his arrest and suffering and crucifixion and all the way to the cross. We see Jesus's faithfulness and in comparison or contrast, however you would say it, you see human frailty and a lot of human failure beginning with Peter's and the disciples and really the ungodly and wicked uh, religious leaders who are putting him through these things and Pilate, of course, and all the others as well. And, and, and you'll see this very clear contrast of Jesus's faithfulness, which we so deeply appreciate, and our human frailty and our human failure is so often the case. Now, uh, remember kind of as a backdrop, as we kind of merge into where we're at in the scene, because it's just a running narrative that we're following. Uh, beginning back around verse 39, we saw Jesus went out and over to the Mount of Olives. He went over to the area called the, the Garden of Gethsemane there, where he began to work through under the stress of the reality of the, the, the coming judgment upon his life as the Son of God and the Savior of the world, realizing that he was about to drink the cup of the wrath of God against the sins of the world as the sinless Son of God. And he's under the stress and the, the reality of what this was going to mean to go through eternal redemption and the suffering physically and the things that he would endure and the breach in some mysterious way of the fellowship that he always had in the communion with the Father throughout his entire life, throughout all of eternity, as the Father and the Son would settle this matter of eternal redemption, working together this plan upon the earth. And we saw Jesus, it says, began to instruct his disciples, it said, to pray that they would not enter into temptation, because he knew his arrest would happen in a matter of a few hours. And then he went off, remember, and knelt down and began to just pray, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, knowing that it wasn't possible, not my will, but thy will be done. And it says that Jesus, being in agony, continued to pray and to work through this in prayer with the Father, his sweat becoming like great drops of blood, hematidrosis, this rare condition when someone's under extreme duress 
and incredible stress in their life psychologically, emotionally, spiritually as Jesus is undergoing something that in a sense really to me it's, it's holy ground. I don't know if human words could articulate or ever fully say we understand what Jesus our Lord was undergoing as the Son of God at the same time being simultaneously fully human like you and I as he's about to undergo the great sufferings he would to make payment for our sins. After Jesus praying there, it says he arose, he then began to go back to his disciples, finding them sleeping. He again encourages them to rise up and pray so that they would not fall prey to temptation. At that point, verse 47, let's just kind of read it from there on, giving us a, a running start at our text this morning. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, the multitude... The other Gospels tell us a few hundred. When It says, Now arrive, and one called Judas, who was one of the twelve, went before them, and he drew near to Jesus to kiss him, to identify him, so they knew who the one he was betraying into their hands would be. And Jesus turns, says to Judas, Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen thinking that they needed to come to the Lord's defense to stop this so they didn't arrest their leader and their Lord. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, we know Peter, we talked about, swung his sword, cut off the right ear of one of the high priest's servants. Malchus, we're told his name was. And Jesus, where we left off last week, answered and said, Permit even this. The other Gospels tell us that he said, Put your swords away. Don't you know that I could call right now legions of angels to come to my aid. If I, if I really wanted to stop this, don't you think indeed I could do any, any stifles the efforts of the disciples to resist what though they didn't understand was actually the will of God because they were lacking in prayer and unsensitive to the spirits leading at this time and trying to resist what was happening and then Jesus graciously, his last recorded miracle, touches and heals the ear of this servant who had just been inflicted by the wounds of one of his disciples that wasn't paying attention to what God's plan was. In verse 52, we pick it up in the midst of this tense moment where he's about to be taken into custody and arrested. It says, And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the temple, that is the, the temple guard, the idea is, and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? So notice Jesus points out here their complete misunderstanding in regards to who he really was. They could not have been more off target in relationship to who Jesus was. I mean, first of all, they're, they're acting as if the Lord is like a hardened armed and dangerous criminal. They got swords and clubs and hundreds of individuals to take Jesus into the custody under arrest as if he's again this dangerous, armed and dangerous criminal. And secondarily, it's really when you step back and look at it, it's almost quite ludicrous to consider the fact here is humanity seeking to take control. They're, they're taking God under arrest <laughs> And they're thinking somehow with their swords and their clubs, they're going to just they're going to just take God over and and get God under control somehow. It just shows you how far off base people can be in their hearts and minds and understandings 
about who the Lord really is and what God is really like. It's, it's kind of sad and tragic how blinded people can be when they truly don't have the Spirit's illumination in their heart and life to see Jesus for who He really is and to understand Him correctly. So Jesus says, well, here you are, you guys, you have, you know, you're acting like I'm an armed criminal. He says, verse 53, when I was with you daily, every day, in the temple, teaching, did you not try and seize me? You, you never tried to take me into custody every day I was with you in the temple in the broad daylight. But, he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. So look what Jesus does in verse 53. He reminds them how he was never hiding from them. He says to them, in essence, look, I always ministered daily in a very open and obvious manner. Every day, he says to them, for the prior days up till this day and throughout all his years of ministry, Jesus sat openly and taught openly in public with you know, those who were gathering to hear his teachings. And Jesus says, in broad daylight, I always did things openly before you up to this point. And important for us to see, Jesus never did anything secretly. Jesus never did anything privately. He never taught in a way whereby he was kind of trying to hide what he was sharing, like there was some secret element to the things that he was communicating. There was no sense of secrecy in how Jesus ministered. Jesus ministered in a way where everything was in the light. Nothing was hidden. Nothing needed to be hidden. Everything was out in the open. It was obvious. It was in the light in every way. And that's why Jesus is saying here in verse 53, I was with you daily in the temple. In other words, you could have seized me anytime you wanted to. But you didn't want to seize me in that way. Instead, now you come to me in the night because this is the power of darkness and now you want to take me under arrest and seize me and bring me into custody when it's dark out and out here where none of the crowds know what you're doing. And in this really secretive way in the dark, they're going after Jesus now to draw him into custody and it just shows how the corrupt religious leaders in this day, they're trying to do quite the opposite. They're trying to cover up their tracks and they're trying to do things in privacy and in the dark. And again, what a very clear contrast. Please take note, if you would, by way of application of the contrast between Jesus and these corrupt religious leaders whose hearts are not right with God. The work of the Spirit of the Lord is all done in the light. It's all done in the open. There's no sense that things are kind of being hidden or, or, or kept back. Everything is just out in the open. The works of the Spirit of the Lord are done right out in the open. It's all in the light for everybody to see. In contrast, notice the works of the flesh were trying to be kept in the dark. The works of the flesh were done in a way where it was kind of private and secret and, and, and kind of in a way where we don't want everyone to know what's... And it was kind of quite the opposite. They were trying to hide what they were doing. That's why they didn't seize Jesus in the temple. They went and got him at dark so nobody would know what they were doing. And they were doing it in a way purposely that was rather secretive and rather private. And let me just say, Ephesians chapter 5, speaking of the works of darkness, tells us this in Ephesians 5 regarding the works of darkness. It says, It is shameful to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. And this morning, can I just encourage you to be careful of things that have to be done privately? Be cautious of things that have to be done in secret. Well, we're going to do this, but, but let's keep it private. 
we're going to do this, but let's just keep, let's keep this a secret. Let's not share this. Be careful of that kind of stuff. I always tend to be a little bit leery and wonder why if things are being done, but they have to be done in a way purposely, where they have to be done secretly or they have to be done privately. I always say, why? What's the big secret? Why does it have to be so private? A lot of times that tends to lend itself to the reality. There's a reason why it has to be so private. And a lot of times maybe there's something that's not right and that's, that's why. Maybe and it's a work of the flesh and truly not a work of the Spirit of the Lord. Because typically things that are happening that are not right usually happen in the dark, in the private sectors. And, and that's, that's just kind of the way that things work among us in our world. And when you feel like that you need to do something but you got to keep it private, what do you got to keep it private for? What's the big secret? Is it because perhaps someone would challenge you what you're doing is wrong? if they knew what you were doing and you weren't keeping it private and secret. And we need to be cautious ourselves when our hearts feel inclined to get secretive and private in certain ways. And we need to be careful of things that kind of have to have this private element and measure of secrecy to it. Be cautious. We see this interesting contrast between Jesus and the disciples here. And Jesus, in essence, says to them, he's indicating, look, please know, you're not really triumphing over me. He tells them, verse 53, simply the reality you could have seized me any day you wanted to in the temple I, I i wasn't trying to hide from you guys you could have taken me in the custody any day you wanted to publicly in front of all the crowds right there in the temple in jerusalem but he says verse 53 but this is your hour this is your hour he says and the power of darkness he's indicating look gosh, you're really not triumphing here i'm submitting to this this is, the, this is your hour and this is the power of darkness and Jesus at this point was allowing the power of darkness to have its way in such a manner whereby it ultimately fulfilled and brought to completion the will and the plan of God. To arrest Jesus and turn him over to be put to death would ultimately bring about the fulfillment of scripture and the accomplishment really of the, the will of God and God's plan. And to me, it's interesting, pretty amazing how Jesus ruling over all affairs, because he's an authority over everything that happens in life, that Jesus ruling over all affairs even uses the activities of the powers of darkness to fulfill his purposes and still accomplish the will of God. To me, this is just so interesting to see how Jesus can use all things to cooperate still to bring about God's will. Even the darkest, most horrific and wrong and evil things, and not that the Lord appreciates them or accepts them or endorses them, but God just superintends, and because he's so wonderful and all-powerful, he just superintends the Bible tells us that he uses the wrath of man to praise him. Nehemiah says that he turns the curse into a blessing. Uh, I love Genesis chapter 50, the story of Joseph and his personal testimony. And, and really, to me, it's prophetic of who Jesus was and what would take place with Jesus. Listen to Joseph's words regarding evil things that happened to him and how God turned it around and used it for his good purposes still. Joseph in Genesis 50, 20 says, But as for you talking to his brothers, his family who harmed him. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And isn't that prophetic of exactly what happened with Jesus here? 
the power of darkness. They meant evil against Jesus. All the religious leaders and the government of Rome, they meant evil and harm against Jesus. Satan meant evil against Jesus and God used it to turn around to bring it about good and the saving of many souls because in their arresting and crucifying Jesus, they were, in essence, ultimately, sovereignly bringing about in cooperation the very plans of God. And that's a great thing to know because, you know what, evil things happen to us. Nasty things happen to us. People may lie to you and rip you off and, and, and cheat you and hurt you and harm you and abusive, painful, horrible things happen in this very dark world. And people do evil things to us and evil things to one another. But the wonderful thing is God can even use those things to cooperate with His best and His plan and His purpose for your life. That He can redeem the darkest and most evil things. And here's a fitting example even with Jesus. Look with me in verse 54. Our story goes on saying, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him out into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. So at this point, they now arrest Jesus, bring him into custody. And at this point in verse 54, this is now the first of six separate trials that Jesus will undergo as the result of this process before his death. Three trials by the Jews and then three trials under the Romans. The first arrest here, they bring him, it says, to the high priest's home. Now, if you're a note taker, you might want to jot in John chapter 18 because there you get the fullest account and it fills in all the details of what Luke really doesn't give a whole lot of dialogue and information about here. He just tells us that he was brought to the high priest's home. We know from the other gospel accounts that before Jesus was brought to the house of Caiaphas, who was the official high priest holding the title at that time, that first he actually was brought to his father-in-law's house, whose name was Annas. And Annas was basically the ex-high priest or the prior high priest. Annas, during his reign as high priest, fell out of political favor with Rome because in that day, the high priest ultimately just became little political puppets with the Roman government. Tragically, it was, it was really more of a political position and, and there was such a marriage between politics and religion that it, it, it really had become defiled. And, and Annas fell out of political favor with Rome so they removed him from his position and they installed Caiaphas, his son-in-law, into his place instead. But the people still recognized Annas as the high priest and he was kind of the, if you would, power behind the throne. So first they take Jesus to Annas' property or where Annas was at. Potentially their houses maybe even were connected, we're not certain. But he goes before Annas first. There he's questioned and cross-examined and he begins to be abused and beaten and struck in the face at that point. After being in front of Annas, Jesus secondly was then led to the home of Caiaphas, the official high priest, at which point false witnesses were brought in to falsely accuse Jesus of things he did not say or do. And Jesus goes through these two illegal trials, and they were illegal what they were doing, during the night, these illegal gatherings of the Sanhedrin false witnesses brought in. And this was all illegal according to their own Jewish law. In fact, let me just read you a few of the laws that existed among the Jews, which indicates to you what they were doing was violating the law, even in this arrest and process of trying Jesus. According to Jewish law, all criminals must begin and end in the daylight. 
This was an overnight evening trial they were putting him through. According to Jewish law, only decisions made in the official meeting place were valid. In other words, it had to happen in the Sanhedrin chambers. They were at the high priest's home putting Jesus through this process. According to Jewish law, only acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts, which is what they found Jesus of, had to wait one night to allow for feelings of mercy to rise. Also, all evidence had to be guaranteed by two witnesses who were separately examined and could not have contact with each other. And lastly, a trial always began with bringing forth evidence for innocence of the accused before the evidence of guilt was offered. And you watch what they do through the gospel narratives and they violate all that. It's at night. They don't don't honor any of these things. They're violating their own laws as Jesus undergoes this process. So here's Jesus undergoing these examinations. He's being falsely accused. He at this point begins to be physically abused. They're beating him as they're waiting in the process of these various different trials. And Luke zeroes in, however, on what's happening in the courtyard with Peter who had followed the Lord in the midst of his arrest and being brought into custody. He tells us what's going on in the courtyard area of the high priest's home as they're examining and interrogating Jesus. The first thing he tells us in verse 54 is that Peter, on that night that Jesus was arrested by the guards and brought into custody, that Peter followed at a distance. Now, let me just say up front, that really required a measure of courage on Peter's part. To follow Jesus as a group of individuals with swords and clubs came and took him into custody. And I think Peter's following Jesus because somewhat he wants to indicate that he really did mean what he said so emphatically a few hours earlier when he said, Lord, I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die with you. And I think Peter was sincere when he said that. And no doubt he probably followed at a distance here because he wanted maybe in his own conscience to indicate that he really meant what he said, that he wanted to be committed to the Lord. Yet the reality is his commitment to the Lord is not quite as strong as he really perceived that it was. And Peter's having a reality check of that. As he follows the arresting party of Jesus, take notice, verse 54 says that Peter kind of stood back at a safe distance because he's in his protecting of his own self-preservation here it says as jesus is arrested at this point now peter follows but he follows at a distance and what a fitting statement i don't think anything is by coincidence in the word of god because it's spirit inspired what a fitting statement to indicate one of peter's steps towards ultimately denying the lord and failing in a tragic way personally in the verses ahead we're going to read of the fulfillment of jesus's prediction to peter when he said, Peter, look, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, bud. And, and you're going to deny me three times, even before the rooster crows in the morning. And we see the fulfillment of those things happening. And, and as we look at this event here, Peter followed the Lord at a distance. It was one of the things that preceded his denial of the Lord and his failure. I, I think we can almost sort of trace some of the steps in some ways that led up to Peter's failure, the things that preceded him denying the Lord. And I think there's application for us because often those are the same things that Peter did that precede our times of personal failure, that precede the things that lead us 
to at times fail the Lord and deny the Lord ourselves. Think with me about it for just a minute. Peter, first of all, did not take seriously the warning of the Lord given to him. Jesus warned him clearly that Satan was after him. He warned him he should be praying. And, 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 and Peter did not believe and take seriously the warnings of the word of God that were given to him. Secondly, you see, Peter also, was he not? He was a little bit self-confident. Lord, they may all deny you, but I'll go to prison with you. I'll die with you. And Peter was self-confident. As well, we see that Peter was sort of slacking off, if you could say. He was slacking off in his devotion to God. What was he doing? Remember, he was sleeping instead of praying. And in his own personal devotion to God, he was, he was kind of slacking off and he wasn't being as, as sincere and devoted in his personal devotion to God, depending upon God, seeking God, relying on God as he should have been. Another thing, no doubt, that contributed to that. As well, we see that Peter, it seems, was acting independent of Jesus' direction. And he was just doing what he felt was right. Because remember, when the guard showed up, what does Peter do? Should we strike? He doesn't even wait for an answer. <laughs> he just cuts the guy's ear off. He's acting independent of the Lord. He's not waiting for God's direction. He's just doing what he thinks feels right in the moment. And lastly, we read in verse 54 here that Peter's doing what? It says he's following Jesus, but at a distance. In other words, he's kind of, he's pulling back from the Lord. He's kind of hanging back a little bit. And can I just say, is that not true that those are all things that are clear indicators of what happens in our life typically right before we fail the Lord. A lot of times those are the same things that precede my personal failures. Those are the things that go before the times when you and I deny the Lord. We don't take seriously what God's Word says. God's Word says something that's truth and it warns us, hey, you're going to go down this path, that's going to have a consequence. That's sin and it's going to bring problems and we don't take seriously the Word of God. We just ignore it and brush it off and, and do what we want anyway. Like Peter, sometimes we can get a little self-confident. We think we're way more committed and strong in the Lord than we are, and our self-confidence causes us to just tip over. And ultimately, again, the Bible tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Just like Peter, at times, when we start slacking off in our personal devotion to God. I don't need to have morning devotions every day or I don't need to read my Bible every day or pray every day or I don't need to be in church all the time. I mean, I've been a Christian so long. I have so many scriptures in my memory. I'll just meditate on an old one. And, and, and we just we begin to kind of slack off in our personal devotion to the Lord. We're not abiding and, and we begin to become anemic spiritually. And then like Peter, a lot of times we just start acting independently of the Lord. We respond to situations however it feels rather than according to asking the Lord's direction and waiting for his guidance. And, and like Peter, we sometimes we start to pull back and we start to follow the Lord at a distance. I'm still following the Lord. But are you following him as close as you once were? Or are you following him at a distance now and kind of pulling back? That's what precipitated Peter's major failure. And I think it's just a fitting outline the spirit of god puts before us that when we see these things in our lives it should be like a red flag blink 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 danger ahead because a lot of times that's what happens right before we 
take our own tour right off the cliff and do things that we regret and have problems regarding afterwards. Look at verse 55, then it goes on to say, Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard there, it was a cold night, the Gospels tell us, and they sat down together, Peter sat among them. Look where we find Peter now. We find Peter, if you would, settling in and he's warming himself where? Among the enemy's fire. Another bad idea. It's a cold night and they start a fire while they're waiting for Jesus to be interrogated in the house. And now we find Peter not following Jesus as closely as he did, but also we find him sort of kind of settling in and getting comfortable among those who are not followers of Jesus. And he's warming his hands. And again, I think this is just kind of another, if you would, another step or a final step before the bottom drops out a lot of times in our lives. Where we begin to get so distant and disconnected maybe in our hearts spiritually that we start settling in. Again, Peter sat among them. He started settling in among fellowship and blending and trying to blend and get comfortable among people who were not servants of the Lord. And he was getting sort of comfortable and he was trying to blend in among those who weren't followers of Jesus. And can I just say, beware if you find yourself starting to do that. It's a dangerous place as a Christian when you start trying to settle in and get comfortable in such a way with people who aren't followers of Jesus. I'm not saying we shouldn't have fellowship with people who don't know the Lord. How are we going to be a witness to them? How are we going to show them, hey, taste and see that the Lord is good. Look, I love Jesus. I'm normal. Accept the Lord, man. I'm not saying we shouldn't have contact with people in the world. But it's important to realize that if we're more comfortable with non-Christians, and if you're able to just blend in with your unsaved friends and laugh at all their jokes and act like them and, and play the hypocrite and be a chameleon and be the unchristian when you're with the unchristians and the Christian when you're with the Christians, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And Peter here, right before a major failure, was kind of blending in, sitting down. He's warming. The, he's just trying to act like all the rest around the campfire who are enemies of the Lord. And they're not followers of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good character or good habits. And so often that can be the case. And Peter here, he's settling in. And here it begins to unfold. Watch what happens now. Verse 56. The devil's set Peter up for this. And certain servant girl says, Seeing him sitting by the fire there, looks intently at Peter and says, Wait a minute. You're with that Jesus guy. I've seen you walking around with it. This guy, is, he's one of those followers of Jesus. This man was with him, she says publicly. So Peter now gets exposed as a follower of Jesus. Typically, that's what happens among the unsaved. <laughs> anyway, you know, you're hanging out with the unsaved. You're trying to act like you know, you're not really a follower of the Lord. And you just, they just blow the trumpet on you anyway. Why did you just laugh at that joke? I thought you were a Christian. I thought you're a Christian. You act like all the rest of us. You lie just like we do. You d I thought you're a Bible reader, and, and, and they just blow the trumpet on us anyway, and we just look dumb. We demo demolish the Lord's testimony, and we deny the Lord. And, and uh, Peter, you're one of his followers. What are you doing here? You're, you're one of those followers of Jesus. Well, verse 57 tells us that Peter denied Jesus, saying, Woman, I do not know him so here peter was supposed to be so bold so courageous this guy was the leader among the group so often and a spokesman and now he becomes an utter coward 
and he denies Jesus publicly in his commitment before a little girl. And this man who was so bold, he just crumbles under pressure and temptation and a fear. He's ashamed to admit that he's a follower of Jesus. He's embarrassed to admit that he's a follower of the Lord. Man, how quickly sometimes we discover that we are not quite as committed as we think we are. How quickly we find ourselves embarrassed by our actions or attitudes or things we do where we're afraid because we love ourselves so much to admit we're associated with Jesus. And, and here Peter finds himself in this place. He just denies the Lord, this courageous man, but a little girl. He's intimidated by a little girl and can't say that he knows Jesus because of his love, his own reputation and the hour and his fears and concerns. And he denies the Lord the first time. Verse 58 says, And after a little while, then another said, You also of them. Peter a second time, Man, I am not. And then after about an hour passed, Another, the third time, confidently affirmed, Surely this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. It seems that those from Galilee had a particular type of, of accent, a dialect. It was obvious among those in Israel. You could tell when someone was a Galilean there in Jerusalem. And they, this guy, again, he is a Galilean, certainly. This was one of Jesus' followers, Verse 60 says, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately, the Bible says, while he was still speaking, imagine the words coming out of Peter's mouth, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times so exactly as Jesus predicted it would happen it unfolded in Peter's life three times in a row he makes the exact same mistake repeatedly denies the Lord fails personally and that morning rooster crows and it triggers Peter's memory instantaneously what to me is interesting, verse 61, is this happens. It says, verse 61, look with me. It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine when their eyes met what that was like for Peter? I mean, what was, what was Peter thinking? What was he feeling? What was Jesus thinking? Personally, I don't think it was a look of anger from the Lord. I don't think it was a look of disgust toward Peter I don't think it was a look from Jesus to shame Peter and make him feel ashamed personally I, I think it was a loving look of assurance that Jesus was aware this would happen and Jesus was concerned for him and Jesus was heartbroken for Peter because he was now going to have to deal with the personal failure that he had just committed and he was now going to have to wrestle through the internal pain and problems and circumstantial difficulties of his own denial of the Lord and his own personal failure and the regrets that come along with that. And I think Jesus looked out of heartbroken concern for Peter and no doubt thinking as he looked at Peter, Oh my, Peter. Oh. What you're going to have to wrestle through in your heart now. What you're going to have to deal with, Peter. Peter... This is why I've been praying for you. 
and why I'm praying that your faith won't fail and your hope won't be lost and that you won't let condemnation. Peter, this is why I've been praying for you and, and no doubt just concerned. I, I just love the way the phrase reads, and the Lord turned. I have those two words circleized. The Lord turned. Because to me, think about it, in the midst of Peter's denial and major personal failure as a man, instead of Jesus turning away from him, Jesus turns toward him in his most tragic moment of failure. Instead of Jesus turning away, Jesus turns back towards the one who fails in tremendous concern and incredible compassion. How wonderful, listen, how wonderful that when we fail, Jesus does not turn away in anger. He's not turn away in disgust because of our failure. And he does not turn away because he's just through with us, but he actually does the opposite. He actually turns back towards us in love and in concern for us, giving us his attention. Can I just say this morning, that is quite different than everybody else in our world. That's a totally foreign response. Most people, when we fail, respond quite differently. Typically, when we fail or when someone fails, people look away. Or, or, or people turn away and they just try and ignore the whole thing because they don't want to have to deal with that mess you just made. Or when we fail, people turn away in, in just disgust. Oh, and they just, in disgust, they, they don't even want to look upon us. Or they turn away to really shame us and let us know, I can't even look upon you. Oh, I can't believe it. And, and they turn away in disgust or anger to just really shame us and, and, and some even just give up and turn and walk away from us. But look, please, how Jesus responds to our failure totally differently. And you need to know that this morning. Because if, if you've personally failed in your past, or maybe you've presently really failed the Lord, or maybe you're sitting here and saying, I am an absolute failure, listen, please know, it does not matter how people have responded to you, God is not like a man. And Jesus has not turned away from you in anger and disgust or shame. Jesus is turning back towards you in love. He's concerned. And you need to know this morning, his eyes are on you in compassion and concern. And he wants to help you in your failure, not turn and walk away from you. How beautiful the Lord turned back to the one in incredible failure. That should give such hope to us in our times of personal failure. And as a Christian this morning, if we claim the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, I'm a Christian, Jesus lives in me, then what should be our attitude when people fail? It shouldn't be like people in the world. It should be a lot more like Jesus, where we turn towards them. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness. Then it goes on to say, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Listen, when somebody has a train wreck, can we bear their burden by turning back to them and saying, you know what, man, my eyes are on you. I'm with you. I'm going to walk you through this. I'll help you. And, and, and seek to in love help them and restore them. That's what the Lord's heart is for us. That we would reflect him and represent him by bearing a burden of helping someone recover even in their hardest times and greatest mistakes. Peter, it says as well here, remember the word of the Lord. 
He remembered, as he heard this, it says he remembered the word of the Lord, what Jesus said. And again, one of the most convicting experiences is what? Is it not? The word of the Lord just piercing our heart in the hours when we make mistakes. A lot of times when I've failed the Lord and I've made mistakes, I don't need somebody to tell me. Because the word of the Lord, it pierces my heart and tells me very clearly. And it brings a sense of power and conviction. And there is no more convicting experience than the piercing of the word of God as light shines into our hearts and reveals to us our own errors. Hebrews 4 says the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, it is just like Peter here experienced remembering the word of the Lord and it says ultimately that he then went out, verse 62, and he wept bitterly and he was just broken. Listen, that is one of the most powerful things. God's word, because it's alive, it's spirit-inspired, is so powerful. And we don't need to pierce people's hearts. Listen, just the lion let it out of the cage. The, the word of God, it does its job. And, and it has a way, I know it has in my life, to just lay me open and bring brokenness. I love in Acts chapter 2 when preaching is taking place among the crowds and it says the people were cut to the heart. From what? Peter's persuasive preaching? I don't think so. It was just the word of God. He was proclaiming the word of God and God's word like a sword, man. It just goes into somebody's heart and just lays them open. The power of the word. As Peter remembered the word, verse 62 says, he went out and he wept bitterly. So he now experiences this personal brokenness. He's deeply grieving and tremendous remorse and regret over what he's done. Psalm 38 verse 18 says, I will declare my iniquity and be in anguish over my sin. This is what Peter's experiencing. It's a good thing to be open and sorrowful over our sin. That's a necessary component. It's an important part, especially after we've erred and denied the Lord. Psalm 51 tells us the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Listen, when you fail, when I make mistakes, I'm going to make some sacrifice. I'm just going to do a good deed to make up for what I've done wrong. That's not what God wants. Oh, I'll just do a few good things to make up for the bad thing that I did. That's not what God wants. The Bible says the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. You know what God wants? For me to really be broken and saddened and remorseful before Him as my God for my sin for what I did wrong. God says, that's what I want. Your heart to be broken over your sin. I want you to be genuinely broken. Perhaps recently you can relate to Peter's experience of, of failing and denying the Lord and, and what it means to weep bitterly and sorrow for your sin. Listen, Jesus assures us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a good thing to mourn over our sin because that's when God's comfort comes. And can I say, genuine genuine personal brokenness is the first component towards forgiveness, towards healing, and towards restoration. No brokenness, there is a block 
and a traffic jam in the highway of God's forgiveness and God's healing and God's restoration. Brokenness over sin. Sadness over our sin. That's the first essential element. Peter here begins to weep bitterly. Verse 63 says, And when the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Take notice as Jesus is abused and mistreated, the cruelty of this. They blindfold him and with a blind and it was something that they would do, the soldiers, they blindfolded him and they're punching him in the face when he's blindfolded. You know why that's cruel? Because typically when you see a punch coming, if you roll with the punch, as they teach boxers to roll with the punch, it lessens the impact. When you're blindfolded and people are just throwing shots at you, you take the full brunt of the blow. And this is what they're doing to Jesus. They're pushing him around and roughing him up and treating him cruelly. And, and, and I look at this and I think incredible control and composure and patience and love Jesus has. I read what they're doing to Jesus there, beating him in a And I think to myself, what were the angels in heaven doing? <laughs> you know, he's, I could call down legions of angels. And I, I just picture all the angels going, just say the word, Father. You know, just say the word. You know, just ready to come down and kill Everybody who's abusing the Son of God. And Jesus just taking the abuse, the verbal abuse, the physical abuse, not reviling them back, not reacting, not... I mean, again, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, enduring this from humanity. It's, it's quite astonishing. Verse 66 says, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people... I guess we're going to get serenaded here. The elders of the people, both chief priests and... Others, it says, came together and led him into the council, saying, if you are the Christ, tell us. So they now bring him the next morning into the official council chambers, which is uh, kind of the Sanhedrin area, because they know this is necessary. This is a legality if they're going to bring him to Pilate, as we'll see shortly afterwards. And they have no authority to put Jesus to death, but they need to trump up charges. They want to trump up religious charges that they can then convert into civil violations before the throne of Rome. And as they bring Jesus in, verse 67, notice they start to get demanding with Jesus, saying, if you're the Christ, then tell us. If you are the Messiah, if you claim to be God's deliverer, and again, seeking to pressure Jesus, they're demanding of him in a rather stern way, tell us what we want to know. If you're the Christ, you tell us. And they're demanding the Lord to answer their questions. Again, I look at that and I think, how shocking and disrespectful. Here's human beings treating the Son of God like this. It's just rather all, you know, all inspiring to look at that. I think of how, you know, times we're out in public and perhaps you've seen before, you see a kid and you see them speaking to their parent or treating their parent in like the most disrespectful way and you're thinking, you have got to be kidding me. That kid is talking to their parent like that. I can't believe this child is treating their parents so disrespectfully. Well, think about the reality here. Think about how they're treating Jesus. He created them. He's keeping their heart beating. And yet they're pushing him around and treating him disrespectfully and demanding things of the Lord. I mean, it just shows you how out of tune their hearts were in this moment. If you're the Christ, they're demanding, tell us. He says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask you, you'll by no means answer me. 
or let me go. So Jesus doesn't buckle under the pressure. They're being demanding and pushy and requiring that he answer. And Jesus is not intimidated. He's not pressured. He doesn't react in a way that's inappropriate. He doesn't get defensive. And he just calmly with incredible self-control says, look, if I tell you the truth, you're not going to believe me anyway. And, and if I asked you honestly, you wouldn't tell me the truth. And even if I share the truth with you about what you're demanding, he says, that's not going to affect your willingness to let me go at this point. Point being this, Jesus was letting them know that giving them what they were demanding of him really was not going to solve the problem at hand because they weren't interested in God's will. And Jesus knew that. And therefore, Jesus knew they were bent on doing what they wanted. And if he gave them what they were demanding of him in the pressure of the moment, it was going to solve nothing because they didn't want to do God's will. And I point this out for this reason, because sometimes people who are not seeking God's will in line with God's will, people can get really demanding of us in our lives sometimes. And it's important for us to remember just because people get really demanding, sometimes we think when people get really demanding upon us that the only solution is, well, we have to just give them what they want because they're being so demanding. So I guess I just they give them what they want because they're being so demanding. No, you don't. <laughs> just because somebody's demanding doesn't mean you have to give them what they demand. So what if they're demanding? Maybe they're pushy and wrong. Or, or we have to get defensive. You know, you don't see Jesus getting all defensive here. There are going to be times in your life where people who are not in tune with God's will are going to be demanding. But listen, sometimes giving them what they want isn't going to solve the thing. Sometimes if they're not interested in God's will, you shouldn't give them what they want because it's not going to resolve things anyway. It's just going to contribute to greater problems. And Jesus recognized that and he says, look, you won't let me go or believe anyway. And he says, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Again, knowing who he was, that he would soon be back on the throne of God in heaven. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 show how this has incredible connection. Jesus' words here, he's making it very evident that he knew who he was. And as they heard these things, you'll notice here, they are connecting the dots. They then said to him, are you... Are you the Son of God? Are you really indeed the Son of God? And Jesus says to them, You rightly say that I am. It's the affirmative. He's saying, Well, uh, what you're saying, you're the one saying it, but you are right. And again, please notice, Jesus did claim to be the Son of God. People say, Oh, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. Oh, yes, he did. Read the Bible. He claimed multiple times to be the Son of God. Well, as he claims to be the Son of God, that seals the final nail in the coffin. Verse 71, they said, what further testimony do we need? In their mind, that was blasphemy. You claim to be God. To the religious leaders, that was blasphemy. We have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And at this point, we'll see next week, they then take him to Pilate to seek to get him arrested for claiming to be a king and claiming to be God. Now, let me leave you with one final thought this morning. I look at this whole account here and what a fitting picture of Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that the Lord works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Human failure. Human sinfulness. 
all the, and the Lord works everything. This is all working together for the counsel of his will. Listen, can I encourage you this morning, your personal failures, the wrong things other people have done to you. The Lord can work all those things according to the counsel of his will and still bring something beautiful out of the most messy things that happen among humanity. Father, thank you for your word and for giving it to us as light in a dark world when things can be really difficult. And thank you that your truth, Jesus, has a way to just set us free. And Lord, even as we'd sing this morning in this final song, we ask that by your spirit, Lord, that, that the things that your word has said to us, like a piercing two-edged sword, that Lord, we'd be responsive to it and that we would believe and respond to what it is you have said to us through your Holy Spirit's ministry. Help us, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.